Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I find it so strange that God calls Elijah out of Israel. I mean, here's a man who is clearly fired up for the Lord. He's ready to not just be fired up for the Lord, but to speak on the Lord's behalf and to do that courageously to Ahab and Jezebel. You'd think that God would give him at least a few weeks in Samaria. Who knows, maybe through Elijah's preaching, God could spark a revival. Or at the very least, maybe Elijah could form a small group of faithful men and women around him. And then together, they could pray and work to see uh, the, the nation restored to God's ways. But that's not God's plan for Elijah. As soon as his message of drought is delivered to Ahab, God calls him to leave. Now, prophets, prophets weren't popular figures in ancient days. It turns out that calling out idolatry is not a recipe for making friends. So far as we know, only Elisha had buddies. The rest of the prophets lived a little like John the Baptist, out on the fringes of society. But though unpopular, a prophet, a prophet was never supposed to be a hermit. Their call was not to retreat, but to engage to be amongst the people, declaring the word of the Lord. I've once heard it described uh, uh, like this, that, that a prophet's call was a little bit uh, like being a sheepdog in the herd of the good shepherd. Right? Their job is to go out and to bark and growl at the sheep so that they get back on the paths of righteousness. But what good is a sheepdog that runs away to live by a stream? We have, we have to wonder what Elijah thought of the Lord's word here. Clearly, he is a man who likes to be in the, the thick of things. He likes to be in the mix. One of the things I noted about Elijah last week is that with Elijah, we don't really get an origin story. There's no narrative of call. No moment that we know where God takes Elijah aside and says, I want you to confront my people with my word. That's usually how it works in the Old Testament, but with Elijah, things are different. Elijah simply emerges. He's seen enough of this Baal worship to know that it's time to stay, take a stand for the Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting here that God is somehow surprised by Elijah's emergence. God's not up in heaven saying, oh, oh boy, I better, uh, you better get down to business here. I better start backing him up and answering his call for drought. No, what's happening here is not a surprise to God. There's a concurrence happening here between what the fire building in Elijah's soul and God's plan for his wayward people. Like the surfer reads the swell, so Elijah is discerning the growing swell of God's anger, and he paddles out in front to catch the wave. But as soon as Elijah stands up on his board and gets his balance... God calls him out of the water. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Cherith Ravine, east of the Jordan. We don't get Elijah's internal monologue on this, but the fact that he obeys is surely a sign that Elijah is committed to being a prophet on God's terms, not his own. One commentator I read this week made a big deal of Elijah's obedience, and I think he raises a good point. As we watch Elijah picking his way through the desolate ravines, we should ask ourselves, 
When did the prophet give the greatest demonstration of his power? When he appeared in Ahab's palace with the thunder of judgment, or when he withdrew from his people to spend the drought in apparent idleness? When was his consciousness of his calling as prophet strongest? When he, was, when he uh, wrestled with God in prayer to be allowed to proclaim covenant wrath? Or when he wrestled with that strange mandate to remain inactive at the very time when he felt an urgent necessity of appealing prophetically to his people for repentance? It takes courage to stand up and speak, no doubt about that. But sometimes it takes more courage to sit still and obediently wait upon the Lord. Last year I had a long conversation with a a man in Vancouver. He graduated from Regent Seminary in 2012. Um, His parents were encouraging him to move back to St. Louis. Uh, His parents owned a family business. There was a job waiting for him there. Um, All he had to do was move home for it. But while praying with people at his church in Vancouver, this man felt strongly like, like he was supposed to stay. Stay in Vancouver. It's been seven years since that uh, communal prayer event at his church, and he's still not sure what God has for him in Vancouver, but he remains convicted that this is where he's supposed to be. Elijah is a man of action. How hard would it have been for him to spend three years in relative isolation? This takes courage. Now, the Kerith, or Cherith Ravine, east of the Jordan, a special word about this place. I have a special daughter named after this special place. A Cherith is not the name of a location or a city. A Cherith, rather, is a geological formation. It's a, uh, a cutting in the rock. The Grand Canyon, for instance, is a, ra- is a rather large example of a Cherith. Here's a picture of a cherith found in the region east uh, of the Jordan. So you just have to imagine uh, a big ravine cut down into the the earth, and there's often a little stream. In the rainy season, this would fill up with water, and then in the dry season, it would slowly trickle, trickle, trickle down until there was nothing nothing left of the stream at all. What's important about Cherith Ravine is really not anything about the ravine itself, What's important about it is what God does there for Elijah, and the message that is sending Elijah there sends to Israel and to us. One of the important things to know about prophets is that sometimes God speaks through them with his words, with with speech, and other times God speaks through them with actions. Ezekiel is a great example of this full-bodied approach to prophecy. In Ezekiel 4, God calls Ezekiel to show God's judgment instead of speaking God's judgment. So he's supposed to show instead of tell. So first God calls Ezekiel to draw a diagram on the wall that depicts the siege of Jerusalem. Then he calls Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 390 days. Lay on your left side for 390 days. You would have a sore left side after that, that much laying, which symbolized the sins of Israel. 
And after that, Ezekiel was to get on his other side and lay on his right side for 40 days, which symbolized the sins of Judah, the southern kingdom. Then he calls, uh, after that, uh, or, or sorry, and all the while, while laying there, Ezekiel was called to bake his bread on a fire fueled by cow dung. Uh, God wanted him to use human feces, but Ezekiel insisted that cow dung would make the point just as well. The point being that this was a picture of the future, a picture of the day that Israel would be forced to eat defiled food in exile. So the picture is meant to showcase the fall of Jerusalem based on the sins of the people, and one day they will be baking their bread over cow dung or something like that, eating undefiled food in Gentile territory. So sometimes words do the trick for communication, but there's something about the smell of burning dung and baking bread that drives the point home in a totally different way. Prophetic actions can speak just as loud as prophetic words. So what is God communicating to Israel by sending Elijah, his representative, east of the Jordan? Remember that the Jordan, it, uh, it's a north-south river um, that flows right through Canaan. It was a, a, a symbolic boundary line Joshua and the people had to cross over the Jordan. They went west over the Jordan in order to enter the promised land, enter the rest that God had for them where they found Jericho, and that was the first battle in the conquest of Canaan. So everyone knew that the area west of the Jordan was their inheritance from the Lord. That was the promise made to Abraham. But God calls Elijah the opposite direction. He calls him out of the land, this is an Exodus scene in reverse. Allow me to make the, uh, note, note the similarities here. In Egypt, Israel lived under the oppression of Pharaoh. So God raised up a leader named Moses, and he sent in the plagues uh, as punishment against Egypt. And then Israel is let loose, and they reach the sea, and God makes a way through the sea, and uh, delivers them to freedom on the other side, where in the wilderness he serves them manna from heaven and water from the rock. Now notice what happens here with Elijah, um, except instead of coming towards the promised land, he's leaving the promised land. So he heads uh, east through the Jordan River, out into the wilderness, after, of course, there's the proclamation of judgment and the drought, which is very plague-like, so he's now in the wilderness, and God meets him there and sends ravens to feed him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drinks water from the stream. So this is an exodus scene in reverse. And what does this exodus communicate? I think it communicates the reality that God has left the building it com communicates the reality that the good news of the covenant and the blessings of the covenant will, for a time, no longer be heard or experienced in Israel. Instead, they will be experienced by one man east of the Jordan, and later on they will be experienced by a Gentile widow, widow in Zarephath, and we'll look at that story next week. The ravens are a nice touch to this prophetic picture, too. 
According to Leviticus 11, ravens were considered to be unclean animals, but here they are called and commanded to take care of the Lord's servant, and they respond with obedience. This is a subtle jab against Israel because it was Israel's special function in the world, it was their special function in the world to maintain the ministry of the word. They were to be a nation that lived not by bread alone, but by every word that came from the mouth of God. And sustaining the ministry of the word and the ministers of the word, it was their calling. But now that job is being carried out by the birds. So all in all, Elijah's relocation is a rather damning prophetic action. But there's hope. There's hope in this picture too. For while God has taken his presence out of Israel, he has not snuffed out the ministry of the word or the minister of the word. Here are a few quotations from Vatvir that testify to God's grace in judgment. As for the Lord's intentions, the important thing to realize is that there is grace in judgment. Yahweh did not remove Elijah from the earth. In other words, he did not completely silence his word of grace. And as long as the Lord sustained this office bearer, Elijah the prophet, and chose to communicate with him, the excommunication of his people could not be definitive. In other words, while God may have left the building, he did not leave his people without a witness. And so long as God sustains the one who speaks on his behalf, there is hope for the people whom this office was designed to serve. This is so important, I think, in order to understand the meaning of this text. God isn't sustaining Elijah just because he likes Elijah or even because Elijah is a righteous man. There were many others in Israel who did not bend the knee to Baal other faithful servants of the Lord, but they weren't protected from the drought. They suffered the curses of the covenant just like everyone else. Elijah is sustained not because he's faithful. He is sustained because he is an office bearer in the mission of God. Some look at this text and see in it a God who provides he sent the ravens to take care of Elijah. And then the application they make for us today is, and he will send ravens to you too in the midst of your need. And it's true, of course, that, that God's eye is on the sparrow. It's also true that he occasionally intervenes to provide for our needs uh, in, our, in ways that are absolutely astounding. I have my own stories of provision in my life, and I'm sure that you do as well. But that's not the point of this miraculous provision at the Cherith Ravine. The hope that this text provides is not that God will send you ravens. The hope that it provides is that God will not abandon the ministry of his word on earth. And this is good news because our greatest need is not daily bread, although that's an important need. Our greatest need is to live a life-giving relationship being reconciled with our Creator. And it's the Word, the ministry of the Word, which announces that and can make that happen. 
So no matter how bad things get, what this text is teaching us, teaching us is that the world will never be left without a witness to God's covenant of grace. No matter how far the world or the church strays from God's ways, we can always count on God to raise up men and women to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and call people to repentance and faith. This story testifies to the persistence of God in the world and his desire to commune with creation and its creatures, which is the end for which his word works to secure. And I don't know about you, but I find this very comforting. A few days ago, Brittany attended a, a, a friend's birthday party. And while there, she struck up a conversation with another acquaintance. Uh, this person was um, pretty discouraged at the time. She, she had just been to a, a big family reunion. And she said that about 10 years ago, nearly everyone in her extended family uh, would have identified as a Christian, uh, would have gone to church, would have made that a very uh, central part to their life. And now there's only two or three of them that are actively seeking to follow Christ in the world. This woman's in ministry herself, and she's just, she's just, she's, she's down on the, you know, she doesn't believe right now that, that the gospel can have an effect in our current cultural climate. She just does not see us gaining any ground. All she looks, she looks around, she just sees people falling away. It's impacting her own family in a significant way. Perhaps you can relate to this woman. According to the National Trust Foundation, it's estimated that about 9,000 churches will fold over the next 10 years in Canada. Sometimes it feels like God has left the building. There's just no power in the preaching, no zest for God and His ways in the pews. Now, some communities, some churches have lost the story altogether and no longer preach Jesus crucified and risen and ascended on high. It's not really surprising that these churches are folding since there's no power left in the church when the gospel isn't told. But many churches are declining even as they remain faithful or try to remain faithful. Their narratives supplied by the idols of modern Canadian life are very compelling. And the complexities of figuring out life in the secular age are disrupting us all, even us within the church. And yet God will not leave his world without a witness. As we speak, new immigrants are reviving the Canadian church. In New Westminster Christian Reformed Church, for instance, the Heidelberg Catechism is being studied in three different languages. And as the church fades in Canada, the good news of the gospel is bearing fruit in other parts of the world. And one day, office bearers from Christ's church will come to Canada from Nigeria and China to tell our great-grandchildren this strange story about a man from Nazareth named Jesus. At the Cherith Ravine, God preserved the ministry of the word by preserving the one called to share the message. 
This world will not be left without a witness, which is a good thing, which is a, such an important thing, because the end for which the word seeks is communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is no greater joy, no sweeter experience of freedom, no more complete fullness to be found in life than being found in Jesus and in loving communion with the Trinity. The word will not be silenced. And speaking of Jesus, the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as the word made flesh. Like Elijah, Jesus had a prophetic office to fulfill. He spoke God's word to the people, calling them to living faith, calling them to repentance and renewal. But what Elijah was powerless to do, Jesus did with his body and blood. Elijah spoke for God, but he could not redeem God's people. But Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was also the great high priest. And so as he confronted the world with God's message, he also had within him the power to forgive and restore. Jesus was exiled out of the city, cast out into the wilderness, and in a prophetic action without words, hung on a cross, showing, revealing the love of the Father for the sake of the world. Amen.